0: Welcome to the Billboard Charpy Podcast. Gary Truss, Billboard's Senior Director of Charts. Trevor Anderson, co-host, is uh, coming up through uh, the magic of pre-taping. He's in our interview this week. He's uh, been on vacation, so i just uh, cutting this intro uh, myself. But uh, our special guest this week coming up on the podcast, Richard Marks. He was number one this week 30 years ago, July twenty third, 1988, on the Billboard Hot 100. His very first of three number ones hold on to the night. So we're going to talk to Richard Marks about that. uh, Talk about him on social media, what he thinks of social media is really outspoken. So uh, we'll get into all that. His new uh, single, it's a version of dance with my father that he uh, wrote with Luther Vandross was originally a hit in uh, 2003. So that's all coming up as we flashback 30 years, 1988, uh, summer, 1988. I had just gotten uh, out of junior high school. That's always a good thing to be done uh, with junior high, uh, moving on to high school trevor i think was uh, about three years from being born uh, in 1988 but uh, great year for music uh, i was 14 and to this day, still my favorite uh, year of music. They say when you're 14, for a lot of people, that's the music you take with you. Uh, definitely true with me. I, I, even beyond that, I feel like the music of that year was really, really sophisticated, uh, just in a way that some other years really haven't been. Songs like uh, One More Try, George Michael, just trying to picture something like that on, on Top 40 Radio nowadays. That uh, Maybe uh, you know Adele kind of came close to that with someone like you, some of her. Uh, more adult leaning stuff but uh, a lot of hits like that in 1988 really really classy uh, pop like that so uh, just love the music of 1988 uh, looking at the top 40 this week uh, one of my favorite songs of all time uh, I know you're out there somewhere moody blues was new in the top 40 at number 38 uh, Bruce Hornsby and the Range was back after uh, their first huge album The Valley Road uh, was number 31 uh, Dirty Diana Michael Jackson number 30 became the record setting at the time fifth number one hit from bad the only Katy perry's teenage dream has since tied that record uh tracy chapman fast car number 27 uh the twist uh, the fat boys their remake of the twist was up to number 22 the original by jubby checker the all-time number one hit in the billboard hot 100s history uh chicago was back with i don't want to live without your love uh, elton john uh, one of his biggest hits in a long time in 1988 i don't want to go on with you like that dj jazzy jeff and the fresh prince parents just don't understand At number 12 uh looking to the top 10 uh, well let's play the top 10 uh, this week 1988 july 23rd on our way to number one and our special guest this week on the podcast richard marks on the billboard Check podcast
1: number 10
0: Richard Marks, thank you so much for coming on the Billboard Sharpie Podcast.
2: It's always a pleasure.
0: All right, so we're flashing back, uh, wow, 30 years, July 23rd, 1988, Hold On To The nights. went to number one on the Hot 100. Do you remember uh, actually finding out the song had gone to number one on the Hot 100 or your big Chart fan over the years?
2: Um, yeah, of course. You know, everybody wants that, that, uh, that experience. I've been lucky to have it several times and that was the first one, um, you know, the first, I remember the first single Don't Mean Nothing peaked at number three in the pop chart and then the follow-up should and I'm Better also peaked at number three and then we inched a little closer with uh, Endless Summer Nights but I remember the, the week that Endless Summer Nights went to number two Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror went to number one and I thought well there's that <laughs>
1: um,
2: but then when Hold On to the Nights went to number one I do I, I distinctly remember uh, for a, a really awesome reason uh which is that I was on a, a very long tour. I'd started touring um almost a year before, um, playing in clubs, and then I, I was lucky enough to get to open for REO Speedwagon on their summer tour in 1987. So then, you know, a whole year later, I was headlining uh, the same outdoor venues and sheds that I had played with REO the year before as an opener. And it was it's just this tour that, just never stopped, you know, it just went on for 15 months straight. And so the night that, uh, that I got the call from the label saying that hold Night to the Nights" was uh, going to be the number one single. I, I not only got to go out to the audience, I think I was playing, um, I think I was in Cleveland at blossom, which is a, you know, day outdoor venue, if it's even still called that, you know, now that all these great outdoor venues all have these corporate names now, but it was right. a place called blossom in Cleveland. And, I got to tell you know all eight thousand people that the song I was just about to play was the new number one song in the country, and so that was incredible. But the best part of it for me was I just happened to have my grandfather with me, hanging out with me on tour. I'd flown him out for a couple of shows. He was um, in his eighties, but he was still really, really uh, healthy and youthful, and and just he was he, he and I were really close when I was growing up. He was a remarkable man. His name was Dwayne, and so he got to celebrate uh, my my first number one single with me. You know, he was at that show. We went out to dinner afterwards. We, you know, we had a, a beer, and it was, uh, it was it was amazing. You know, I mean, as an artist, as a songwriter, we I, I don't care what anybody says. You know, we all want to be number one, and and that was certainly always something that was on my bucket list was to have a number one album, have a number one single. Um, among other things. So it was great to to experience that, and especially the first time.
3: Uh, is the song,
0: I read it was based on a true story, but not about you, right? It was someone else that had this storyline in their life.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I've been writing songs for years, and I was young. I was only 23 when I wrote Hold On to the Nights, and, and so there was only so much of my own personal life I could draw from. You know, I had certainly had the experience of uh, I wasn't married yet, but I was in a re- long relationship with my first wife. And so I'd already, as a young guy, I'd experienced um, at least the, the the feeling of being young and, and being in a relationship and being in love with someone, but also, you know, meeting people and thinking, you know, what if, you know, what if I was single or, wow, you know, am I too young to be in such a serious relationship? Or, so there was a little bit of that um, that I could... You know, there was a little bit of that, uh, yearning, if you will, that I could kind of infuse into the lyric. But it was, um, it was really about a, a friend of mine that was going through, he was older than me, he was married, he was caught up in a triangle, and he, he was tortured by it. Um, and so I just, you know, I, 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 without ever betraying his confidence, because I never, you know, said who it was. I remember saying, dude, I need, I need to, you know, come up with some different material here and I'm going to write about your situation. Yeah. He's like, okay, as long as, as long as there's no names involved, I'm I'm cool with that. <laughs> uh,
0: have people come up to you over the years and maybe uh, just seeing the title, they just think it's a straight up love song. Have you heard from people who think there are people said it was their wedding song not realizing maybe what, what all the lyrics are about?
2: Um, I don't think wedding song I've had people, uh, you know, use certain songs, that i've always been a little puzzling to me um you know people have used right here waiting for their wedding song like a song about two people that you know want to be together but aren't together it's kind of like I, it's almost like you know i'm sure that you heard the story with sting that people have told him that every breath you take you know was at their sung at their wedding and he said i look at these people and go well good luck with that right <laughs> you know it's a song about stalking yeah. um and when some, you know, when now when people come up to me and I go, "Hey, we used your song at our wedding," I always go, "Should have known better." No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but no, not not for weddings. But I'll tell you what, "Hold On to the Nights" has become is a prom anthem. So, and even though it's not lyrically on the nose, the the uh, the sort of overall, hold on to the memories, hold on to to, to this moment, um, certainly did lend itself to. Something like a prom, and so it's, it's it's become to this day a a huge prom theme, a big enough prom theme that Family Guy lampooned it. You know, used it in a right. in an episode where where Meg was at a prom and that was like she loved the song. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think Brian was was rolling his eyes as it played.
2: Yep,
3: yeah, yep. So when you wrote the song, did you know that this would be a hit? Did you have any indication, any feeling that this could be your first number one?
2: No, I've never written the song that that I thought was a hit at the time that I wrote it. I've never had that experience that I've heard other songwriters talk about, where they just you know, I just knew, and and I don't know. Maybe if I ever had had that feeling, I I would have stifled it because I just feel like it's um, you know, bad karma maybe, or uh, and it's just never been as much as I've always you know wanted to have songs be successful that wasn't the motive. That wasn't the motivation to write whatever it was I was writing. I was writing just because I needed to say whatever it was I wanted to say. And I was just creating, I was just, you know, making things. And in my case, I make songs, I make up songs. And, um, I've never gotten hung up on whether something is commercial or, you know, um, I've always left that to other people. I've left it to the, you know, if I was at a record company, I would leave it up to the record company. If, if my manager or if, if radio promoters and people would weigh in on which songs they thought were the most, had the most potential commercially, I'd go, okay, whatever. I don't have any, you know, here's 10 songs that I wrote that I I love all of them. You know, whichever ones you want to be the singles, I don't care. Um, so no, it was, it was never a feeling like I... Thought, oh i really i'm onto to something here I'm onto my first number one single in fact um when I wrote the song when i wrote hold on, hold on to the night uh, I wrote it in in nineteen eighty six and it came out in eighty seven on the album and then it was a hit in eighty eight and in eighty six i was um I was just completely obsessed with Peter Gabriel's so album I'm still kind of obsessed with that album and and the production peter's production especially on the slower songs like Mercy Street and Don't Give Up, they were very sparse and very ethereal. And even though I knew that Whole Night of the Nights could easily be produced as a power ballad, as a straight-ahead arena rock uh, ballad, like there were plenty of those going on around at the time, I, I as a producer I went in and then as an arranger I went in and I wanted to try to um, borrow from the influence of the Peter Gabriel stuff that I was so crazy about, and that's why you know there's no drums until the last 35 seconds of the song, and right. it's it's very ethereal and it's very there's a lot of space, and it didn't sound like anything else on the radio, and so much so that I remember um, not only the A and R department of my label EMI at the time, but certainly the the head of radio promotion, they were. They were telling me that it just wouldn't work, you know. I remember the head of, of radio promotion, pop radio, saying, "Dude, nothing happens until the end." <laughs> and they were they begged me to go back in and re-record it and recut it and have the drums come in in the first chorus and just it's like, please sound like everything else. Yeah, and and I just was like, Nah, this is the vision I have for this. And if it's a hit, great. And if it's not, it's exactly what I wanted it to sound like. And um, you know, even now when I Occasionally, we'll we'll hear it on the radio. I actually I listen to that one a lot because I I love the I love the record uh, that I made of this song. You know, I I, Patrick O'Hearn from Missing Persons played bass on, played fretless bass on it. Um, An incredible session guitarist named Michael Landau, who's played on a million huge records, uh, played all the guitars. Um, I love the entrance of the drums um, very much. You know borrowing from phil collins in the air tonight where kind of out of nowhere is this huge drum fill that you know takes us into a whole nother place um and that the drums were played by tristan bowden who who was in kenny Loggins' band forever and then uh, has been a member of the group chicago for years and um you know some incredible players um surrounding me playing piano and singing so uh, yeah i'm really proud of the record i think it i think uh I think there's parts of it that actually still sound pretty fresh. I mean some of it sounds a little dated to me, but some of it some of it kind of holds up for me. Don't you open-
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
1: Yeah, I
0: love how uh, it always kind of comes back to that. The secret of success for a lot of songs seems to be that they sound pretty much like what is out at the time, but there's something just a little bit different that separates it enough. And that's what makes it stand out enough and usually winds up being a number one hit.
2: Yeah. I mean, that was kind of, um, I mean, it's kind of how I started at radio, you know, don't mean nothing came out in, in the spring of 1987 when pretty much everything you heard on pop radio anyway, were your, uh, was either a hair band, you know, uh, a hair metal band track or disco, you know, like um, '80s disco dance music, and to have a a real organic sort of Southern California rock and roll mid-tempo song with three of the Eagles performing on it, and we hadn't, you know, there hadn't been an Eagles record in seven years at that point. Right? Um, you know, it, it was so. I remember thinking, there's no way radio, pop radio, is going to play this. Maybe rock radio will play it, and rock radio, you know, it was a number one rock track. But I, I didn't think it would cross to pop to pop radio because I just it didn't sound like anything else that anybody was playing. And to your point, of course, that's one of the reasons I think it did become a hit was because it didn't sound like anything else.
0: All right. The other thing I wanted to ask you while we have you here today, Richard, is uh, you on social media? Uh, yeah, I've been a fan of your music obviously for, for so long now, but I'm I'm such a fan of, of Richard Marks, the person on Twitter because uh, I, I know I'm always going to get something honest from you, whether it's something, is uh, a lot of it is just thanking fans who, who said they loved your show, maybe they saw you for the first time, they've been waiting to see you for years, you're, you're just thanking them. But you, you get into, uh, obviously, a lot of social issues, and uh, you're, you're very honest. Either way, uh, you've said, uh, you recently tweeted, you, you voted both Democrat and Republican over the years, you're, you've been really critical of the current administration, but it, it always seems like you're just going back to uh, truth and decency is what you want to see uh, come out of government.
2: You know I got to tell you man that the the social media thing, particularly the Twitter uh, situation, you know I, I find that i I don't really enjoy the interaction so much uh, because I, i'm I have never seen so much rampant ignorance and and um, and lack of education, lack of awareness of facts. Um, You know, I I am starting to, (laughs) little by little, I'm starting to think maybe I'd rather be uninformed than misinformed. Um, And so there's so much viciousness um, on that particular platform that, you know, whereas Instagram, I generally generally enjoy that more because it's just a little bit more um, about you know, just to capturing a, a, a photographic moment. You know, for a while, I was even using Instagram to be a little bit more um, socially or politically uh, vocal. And and again, it just brings out the worst in people. Uh, I, I personally, I don't understand. I can't fathom the idea of seeing. Uh, you know, running, coming across a post of someone who I have never met, who I probably will never meet, and they posted something that they felt, you know, they, they posted their opinion about something maybe that's going on. The idea that I would comment to them, especially something nasty, because I maybe disagreed with what they said, is is like anathema to me. Like I don't understand I, I don't understand it even from a mental health standpoint. Uh, it was just something that would never ever occur to me because I have a life You know, like I don't care what you post on your Twitter page. It's your Twitter page. Post what you want, unless you're targeting me, unless you say something nasty about me or somebody that I love, or you know. I mean, there's no reason for me to weigh in on what you said negatively. Um, But that's really what these platforms have become. It's just an arena for people to say the most vile, disgusting things that they would never have the guts to say to that person's face. Um, And I think it's. You know, I'm. Kind of, you have to ask me week to week. You know, some sometimes I'll go, no, you know what? It's really good. It's good interaction. It's good. and and there are things about it I love in terms of being able to thank the the fans and right, people yeah. that have been loyal to me. And I and I do try to to do as at least try to do as much of that as I do bashing the trolls. Um, and I also love it to to uh, shine a light on other people's work that I really love. I love talking about. You know somebody's new song that I heard that I really love, and just turning people on to it, or even just reminding people um, of songs that maybe you haven't heard for a while. You know, like quite a while. I mean, it was like a year ago or nine months ago. I I tweeted something about Bobby Caldwell's "What You Won't Do for Love," which is to me one of the greatest records ever made. It's it's just incredible, and it sounds just as fresh today as it ever did. And uh, I don't know Bobby Caldwell, but I just give it a you know I gave it a shout out and. People just were like, Oh my God. Yeah. That song, I'm going to go download it. I I completely forgot that one. You know, I love that. I love that kind of, um, I love the power of social media platforms for that. Um, and look, let's face it. I, I have Twitter to thank for meeting my wife, Daisy Fuentes. You know, we, if we hadn't been following the same person, Martha Quinn on Twitter, we might not have met. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I mean, th- believe me, I've got nothing but love for it in a certain way. But if you were to ask me this week, I think it's a, a, for me, it's a case of diminished returns, and I'm and I find myself feeling better uh, just in my in my psyche when I step away from it for a while. You know, I, I definitely need to go on breaks from from all social media. It just sometimes, it just gets too much for me.
3: So, in particular, you know, a lot of artists in the past couple of years have gotten a lot of flack for either, you know, staying completely out of of politics and and any sort of political topic, or some artists, of course, have gotten a lot of flack for jumping in at every point. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on what you think an artist's role with social media should be, you know, in an ideal world? Should they use this platform to engage and talk, or should they just... You know, some people say just stick to the music, stick to your promotion and stick to safety.
2: Oh, no, it's completely subjective. You know, it's the same thing that, you know, I, I remember for years uh, people would ask me, do you feel like artists have a responsibility to give back to community, to the world in terms of charities and um, raising awareness for things? And then the answer is no, I don't think that you have a responsibility as an artist. I I feel like I have a responsibility as a human to, um, help in ways that I can help. And it just happens that some of the ways that I can help, uh, either bring awareness or raise funds or, um, help, you know, charities is through being an artist. It just happens that, you know, we, the people, you know, we're in the public eye. We have fan bases so we, we can bring attention to, uh, plights, to causes, to, you know, great charities. But it's not a responsibility. I, I, I'm, right. I'm a little, um, I'm a little allergic to that word because I really do think it's subjective. I feel the same way about um, people in the entertainment business or any any walk of life weighing in on their social media platforms about um, politics. Uh, it's completely subjective. I don't think any, I don't think you have any kind of responsibility to do it or a call to do it. I actually kind of. Envy there are a couple of people that I'm really good friends with who will not go there on their social media platform. it's just their music it's just promoting their shows promoting their music and I envy that you know it's just that's not how I'm wired i you know i I respect that they don't want to do that, but for me it's um it's been an avenue for me to sort of just it started out really just being being a smart ass you know I have a pretty sarcastic sense of humor and and before I got political on Twitter, I just would use it to, to sort of venture into a different art form, which was, can I be really funny in, in this limited number of characters, you know, which was harder before when, when we had less time to tweet, less room to tweet. Um, but then little by little, you know, as you get older, I think you get more I'd like to think that uh, just getting older is what makes you more engaged in what's going on in the world and, and injustices. and uh, but, I, but at the end of the day, a very long-winded answer, I really don't think anybody gives a shit. I really don't. I, I, I wouldn't expect anyone to care what my personal political opinion is about any one issue it's just happens to be the way I feel about it, but people get incensed and outraged and freaked out. And, and at the end of the day, I don't think it does anybody any good. Um, so I don't see a lot of, I think the one thing that is great about Twitter is when, you know, when you can disseminate, uh, injustices and you can bring attention to, to causes and situations that need to be addressed. Beyond that, I don't know that it's um, anything but sort of a, uh, you know, one big round of masturbation.
0: Yeah, to talk about uh, sarcasm. I, feel, I don't know if you saw this comment. I I just chuckled when I saw this. Recently, you you tweeted something. I don't know exactly what it was. It was it was pretty serious. It was maybe it was a series of tweets. It was you know pr- pretty deep. It was, it was fairly philosophical. And uh, someone responded, "Well, I'm glad I didn't dance to that at my prom." So it just kind of pointed out how uh, yeah, there, there's Richard Marx. <laughs> I Marks, love that. Richard Mark's the artist. <laughs> Richard Mark's on Twitter being more uh, I love more, more more social. That's that's what an artist is in 2018.
2: I love that. I do think, you know, one thing um, uh, that I think is important, to, uh, one distinction that I think is important to be made is that this, and, and look, people just become robots and they just repeat what somebody else said. And one of the things that is the catchphrase now is, uh, you know, stick to music, stick to acting Right. as if I don't pay taxes, as if. As if I I'm not allowed because I'm because I'm a singer I don't get to weigh in on something that I might be way more informed about than you are even though you're a plumber and I, I would the idea of saying to a you know an electrician you know stick to the electricity you don't get you don't get to have a political opinion right that's just ridiculous it's just this very tiny minded ignorant um philosophy for you know for lack of a better word because it's really not a philosophy it's just ignorance and i i think it's more rampant now than ever before i think i think we're at a time maybe in the world but certainly in this country where we've never been more discourteous more unkind and more lost than we are right now
3: uh yeah i mean obviously i haven't been around very long but it, it, it's just amazing when people get behind the keyboard, the courage that they somehow find. Um, and especially, you know, when people, you know, you think, you know, somebody and, and what they, who they are and, you know, they're really hiding this whole secret identity. I mean, it's so, it's, it's just. It's like bu- it's, bullying made easy. Really yeah. And I yeah. mean, especially because everybody now has a platform and a voice and, you know, can, can, just turn so nasty and say the meanest things and bully and gang up on people and and not only that then you know they find your address and post it out there and find you know hack your email. i mean it's just incredible the the links that people will go to to try and destroy somebody for you know just a a simple difference in beliefs
2: yeah i mean and there are people who um there are people who post their political views, and in some cases, you know, it's vile shit that they that they post. Um, who are in the public eye, who may be actors, for example, and and I also think it's interesting because um, the fear, and I think this circles back to some of the some of my artist friends who won't go down that road because they're afraid of alienating any 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 fan. And again, I I think that's wise. You know, I think I, I envy it to a degree. I I just don't care. Um, and and the idea that someone would no longer, someone who who might really love what I do musically and artistically, who would no longer like what I do because they disagree with something that I said politically—just shows what an intellectual midget they are. And you know, these there are people, like I said, that. That I know that I, if I sat down to dinner with them, I probably would not. It wouldn't go well. But it doesn't mean that I don't really appreciate their artistry or their their talent. Um, because I, you know, because I'm intellectually capable of being cool with all 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 of the above.
1: We can't even get her into our room for another three hours because it
2: was flooded with sewage.
1: Yes, but we have these free drink vouchers.
2: But they're not valid unless we purchase a third entree.
1: Yes, but we're together.
2: And you're in love. I mean, I think you're in love. I can only hear every sixth word you're saying. Every night only. Buddy Daiquiri. Yeah, it's a stage name. I thought it sounded more like a lounge musician. My real name's Joey Midnight. Oh, yeah. Hey, here's one you might like.
0: Just to take hold on to the nights as we wrap things up, but uh, Richard, into uh, 2018, I was just watching a clip of you, uh, I guess, whistling "Hold On To The Nights" as a lounge singer named Buddy Dackery on "Life In Pieces." Are you starting to do more more, more fun TV kind of uh, bits like that? I'm not sure. I remember seeing you do things like that
3: before.
2: No, I mean, I think it's just that, that you know, it's they've asked me, and and if I'm uh, if I'm not booked, if I'm not on the road, or if it's not you know, I'm on vacation with Daisy, I go, yeah, sure, why not? You know, I mean, the Bachelorette thing, uh, I I hesitated for a minute because I've never seen seen any of those reality shows. Um, But I know that it's huge and I know that people love it. And the way they presented it to me, um, you know, it was a matter of, you know, spending two hours one afternoon. And it was fine. You know, it was fun. They were nice people. Um, And I just, I, I don't, I don't mind, uh, I, I certainly don't mind appearing on things like that for mainly two reasons. One, to have people go, oh my God, look, it's Richard Marx. Yeah. Or people go, who is that? And then they figure it out and then they go find out. You know, because there were plenty of people, I'm sure, on The Bachelorette who had no idea who I was. Um, and, my manager, actually, the week after that show aired, my manager called me and he said, we just got uh they get some, you know, they, we all get data reports, like, incessantly, as you guys know. Yeah. And apparently, my Wikipedia search page just blew up, you know, like, just tremendous amount of hits on my Wikipedia page, which means, you know, mission accomplished. People went, oh, I want to know who he is, you know, the people that didn't know. So, that's worthwhile, and there was... You know, it's not like I'm doing anything that I wouldn't, you know, that I'm against. It's not like I'm compromising anything. Um, the Life and Pieces thing was so great because they wrote me into the script. They initially just wanted to use a couple of my songs, but then um, they kind of got a sense that I, I would, I don't take myself seriously at all. And, and so with it, the, the, the character that they wrote for me was hilarious. Um you know Tommy Sadowski who I was in the scene with and i would become friendly through it and it was just it was a blast it was a really really fun day I know I'm praying for much too much but could you send back the only man she loved I know you don't do it usually but you I
3: also want to bring up um, a really recent release uh, You just put out uh, on YouTube about a couple weeks ago uh, A cover of the song you wrote with Luther Vandross, uh, Dance With My Father Which uh, won Song of the Year at the Grammy Awards about 15 years ago Um, So what what made you at this stage, uh, I know you performed it a couple times live But what made you put out your own recording uh, for the first time And, And what was writing that song like for you?
2: Well, writing it was uh very much like the several other songs I wrote I wrote with Luther back in the day. We became really great friends. Um, he came and sang background vocals on several tracks on different albums I made. but more importantly, we were just really, really close friends. He was one of my best friends and and we started writing together um, a couple of years after becoming friends and we wrote the the single from his Christmas album a song called Every Year, Every Christmas. We wrote another song for another album. And then he had this idea um, for Dance With My Father. And I know that one of the reasons that he came to me to write it with him, separate from everything else, is that um, I had lost my father about seven years before we wrote that song, very tragically and suddenly. And and Luther was one of the only people in my life who helped really, truly helped me get through it. Uh, you know, especially at the at the peak of the grief. Um, you know, he was always there for me and there were many times when I would call him or he would call me to check on me and, uh, and we would have these really long conversations and he was uh, an incredible friend to me, especially during that brutal time for me. And he learned really about my father through my stories and through me grieving the loss of my father. So I think that that was a, a big reason that when he came up with his idea for the song about his father that he came to me to co-write it with him. So that the lyric is really Luther's story. It's completely about Luther's experiences and his memories of his father. And I really just helped drive it musically. Um, and so he we finished it and then he went in and recorded it soon thereafter. and And I think it was maybe a week or 10 days after he recorded it that he had the stroke that ultimately, you know, took him from us. So, the success of that song, the power of that song is very bittersweet for me. Um, I'm thrilled, you know, I I, I I get people come up to me, talk to me about that song all the time. I play it in concert. I see people very emotional when I sing it. Um, and so, I'm proud as can be to be a part of it. It's also hard for me because I really miss my friend, you know, I, I but I also make a point to always it in my show and talk about him because I don't want anybody to forget about him. Um, he was a remarkable man and a remarkable artist. And, um, so, you know, I, I have a, a deep emotional attachment to, to that co-write. Um, it never occurred to me to record it myself, but I've been singing it in concert now for a couple of years with just me and just at, at the piano, just me and the piano. And, and so I, I, I realized that I had I had recorded um, covers of several of the other songs I've written for and with other people. Um, you know the in sync song, That's I Promise You," I have a recording of that, um, and uh, "To Where You Are" that I wrote for Josh Groven. I recorded that different songs, but I'd never I'd never cut "Dance with My Father." And so I'd really just did, did it as an experiment, and um, and I liked it. And so I thought, you know, it's just a good thing to have in my catalog. You know, Luther obviously has the definitive version, um, but nobody's recorded that song in a long time, so I thought, you know, why not me? So at least it's out there, and there's another very intimate version of it.
3: And such a great song. In particular, I think, you know, there are a lot of songs, and and rightfully so, that that celebrate. Mothers, I feel like there's not really a whole lot of songs out there that, that really pay tribute to fathers, and so I think you know, even on Father's Day or, or especially this kind of song, you know, when somebody loses their father, you know, this is great because there's a, a song out there that's for that particular, you know, traumatic emotional experience. And I think, um, I mean, obviously, I love the song. I'm, I'm lucky enough that my father, of course, is still here. But um, every time I, I hear it, you know, somebody posting it on Facebook or somebody on Twitter talking about it, it's just it must be just really rewarding as a songwriter in particular, to to know that you made such an impact on so many people who all can relate to this one thing.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. With every song that uh, that has had an impact on people emotionally, those songs were never written with that as the objective. It was never like I or Luther and I sat down and said, we're going to write a song that really resonates with it. No, it was, it's all very selfish. It's all very um, just communicating a feeling it's all just sort of putting it out there to help myself. You know um, I've written several songs since my father died uh, that really deal with my own personal story and in, and, and missing him. And um, but it, whether it's dance with my father or, you know, I, I can't count, I've lost count of the number of uh, soldiers, male and female who have, stopped me somewhere and told me that Right Here Waiting, to this day, they still use Right Here Waiting as their song when they're away from their their significant other, um, and that that song is their song, even though I wrote it for very, very selfish reasons and specific reasons that had nothing to do with that. Um, Hold On To The Nights being, you know, people coming up to me going, every time I hear Hold On To The Nights, I think of my prom, and I I get, you know, really nostalgic, or, Um, or whatever it is. You know, there are songs that people have written throughout my life that it's as if they wrote it about me. And that's what I do as well. You know, I'm writing songs that that I'm writing for myself, but we're all so connected in so many different ways. And we're all the same in so many ways. We experience so much of the same stuff that when someone sort of really says it, when they really say it the way you'd like to say it but can't, that's powerful. And even I, as a songwriter, have experienced other songwriters saying it, saying something better than I could have. But, you know, instead of me being able to write the song that helps me through a a situation in my life, sometimes it's another songwriter that says it better than I did, you know? And
3: of course, it was the best song of the year, uh, according to the Grammys that year. And I know, you know, f- accolades and awards can it can mean only so much sometimes to some people but i feel like song of the year is a category particularly as a songwriter that you must really treasure because i know stevie wonder you know has won three album of the year grammys and on a special last year he said he still wants to win song of the year he still wants to have that so that moment what was that moment like you know as a songwriter that must have been just the ultimate accolade that you could get that, you know, you wrote the best tune of the year.
2: Well, I don't look at it that way because I don't, it's so subjective and there were other songs that year, even songs that were nominated that I thought were phenomenal songs. Um, So I don't, I'm not comfortable sort of agreeing with the premise that it was the best song of the year. I do I will say though that having it be acknowledged um you know by the organization that represents the 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 art form that I am in which is music and having the Grammy uh, voters um, say we are going to acknowledge this as the song of the year whatever that means uh as a songwriter yes the answer is it doesn't get better than that as a, if you uh, are um, if you write songs for a living and you write songs because that's just what you are. And I started writing songs when I was 15. So, I mean, I don't remember not writing songs. Um, there is no better pat on the back than the Grammy song of the year. It it was surreal for me. It was, it was absolutely surreal. I I was kind of surprised that we won, um, and thrilled. And also again, you know, bittersweet because Luther was, he was still alive, but he couldn't be there with with me at the at the awards. He was he was in the hospital, um, and he was in really rough shape. And it was just a few months after that that he passed. And I did get to go see him. You know, I, I went to see him. I think a few days after we won, and, um, and I went to the hospital to hang out with him. And I and I just think many times I've thought, what an incredible night that would have been if if he'd been there. You know, we would have had. We, prob- we probably we probably would have gotten arrested. You know, we probably would have made the papers the next day for all the wrong reasons. You know, we would have just torn some shit up. All right,
0: Richard. Thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to chat. We've uh, chatted before. It's it's always great to to hear you uh, talking about so many different topics. Just being honest about everything, whether it's something serious or or more uh, just uh, joking, sarcastic. Uh, it's always great to uh, get your take on all these things. And uh, yeah, somehow somehow it's been thirty years since uh, Hold On to the Nights was number one. So congratulations uh, on the anniversary. Yeah, thank you. Thank all right.
2: you. So thank always you. a pleasure.
0: All right, thanks so much, Richard.
2: Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care.